Aliens and flying saucers. This is all in a loop. Hey, welcome to the 60th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, I'm bringing a heavily requested Hall of Famer to the podcast. For 32 years, Gary Smith was, one could rightly argue, the best writer in the country. Not just sports, not just features, writer, period. His lengthy pieces for Sports Illustrated are the goods of legend, from profiles of Richie Parker and Alan Iverson to radio and Emil Griffith. He just did stuff with words and imagery and reporting that most of us can't touch. And his four National Magazine Awards tell the story. Then, a bunch of years ago, Gary sort of vanished. And now, here he is, chatting via flip phone, yes, flip phone, about the process. I love this episode, and I hope you do too, right now, on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. Gary Smith. Yes. Hey, it's Jeff. How you doing? All is well, thank you. How are you holding up? I'm good. I've, I mean, America 2018, I'm as good as you can be. Yes. <laughs> Enough said. Oh, well, let me, I'm going to start with a question that I think, um, I think people are generally interested because I've, I've told a few of our former colleagues at Sports Illustrated that I was going to have you on the podcast. And um, I feel like there's this question, which is sort of, where have you gone? <laughs> you know, like, I think a lot of people <laughs> re- really miss reading your writing. And it's sort of like you have a very common name. You kind of just went back into the you haven't come out with a bunch of books. You're not on Twitter. I'm calling you on a flip phone. Um, where have you gone? <laughs> Uh, nowhere, really. I'm just um, here in, in, uh, at home, and I'm just working, and uh, you know, I've been working on a book, and we'll see where it goes, and uh, that's basically it. Uh, I was never that plugged into the, to the digital grid before. Uh, no, not, nothing changed when I stopped writing for Sports Illustrated, so uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing uh, real newsworthy to report there, but just... Uh, plugging away at the craft quietly and uh and god only knows where it's going well it's really interesting because when i read um you know i can use the information superhighway to do all sorts of gary smith research and there you know i literally have a story in front of me it was by ben yagoda who actually was my professor at the university of delaware and you know how gary smith became america's best sports writer and there's a million different certain new york times gary smith and then one day you just stopped writing for si you had done it for 32 years You'd written, you know, I guess on average four or five really long stories per year. And then you just kind of stopped. Why did you stop? Um, just kind of that inner voice said, it's time. It was, uh, I loved that job. I loved writing magazine stories, diving deep into a subject, uh, spending, you know, anywhere from two to three months thinking about it all day and night. And But there was just a... A point came right at the right at the very end uh, that just said, "All right, that's that's done. It's time to try something else." And uh, it was just very. Uh, I, I just you know had a sense that disregarding that would not be uh, a wise thing, either to the craft of magazine writing or or whatever. I you know never wanted to do anything where I was going through the motions. Uh, that's kind of runs very counter to my. Uh, and uh, so as soon as I got that 
that vibe, it was just, uh, that's it. Uh, let's go. You know, and so I've not had second guessed that. And that doesn't preclude the possibility that some, some moment, the, a certain story might, you know, capture that the spirit and carry me a, a tide that, uh, swept me back into it for some reason or other here or there. Uh, that hasn't happened. I love what I've been doing. And, uh, so all all's been good there. I mean, literally, what have you been doing? I mean, not literally. Like this morning, I brushed my teeth and went to the bathroom. But like, literally, what have you been doing to fulfill any sort of writing or journalistic itch? I've just been working on this book idea, and then just just plugging away at that every day, basically for the first couple of years were research, and then well, last three years has just been writing. Are you secretive about the topic? But, you know, I, I just um, not overtly a little bit but not not secretive about it this is in general about writing when I was writing a magazine story I wouldn't talk about it until it was done even you know my wife was a former journalist and uh, I really prize her editing input and everything once the story's done but there was something almost uh, some feeling of combustion that was occurring and uh, I wouldn't want to like leak the energy of that combustion by just spilling it out on the table and talking it out. Uh, something internal was going on. Just kind of let that, let that have its play and then write the whole thing and try to make it as good as I could possibly make it before any other eyes even came near it. And, uh, so that's been my approach with writing all along with every, every piece I've done, especially since I'm, I think it was even that way probably in when I was writing for a newspaper, but it really got that way once I moved in the magazine world. That's interesting. So I have a, uh, I have a similar paranoia, um, especially with books. And my wife is always saying, why are you so, why are you so nervous? Why can't you tell people what you're working on? And I don't really have a great answer for that. I just feel like I can't. You know, it's funny. It's like, it's really not a feeling of nerves, uh, nervousness about it for me. It's, um, and I, I'm happy to tell them about, about it, uh, what the subject is. But to get into a, a, like a, any kind of a co- more prolonged conversation about any details of any of it, it just, uh, it's weird. I don't know. Uh, it just never felt right. Wait, so I'll ask you quickly, what is the topic of your book? Yeah, yeah, it's about Walt Women and Emily Dickinson. Well. That's that's a that's a big leap from uh, Richie Parker and radio. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I guess it's a big leap. I guess uh, uh, in one realm, but in another, like these are human beings, and I've always kind of looked at it that way, and that's why I was had no problems writing for Sports Illustrated because I was writing about people that just happened to be doing this, you know, trying to pursue greatness in a, one particular in an arena, but. The, the the things, the universals that set them in that motion on that trajectory, I found were pretty applicable across the board. And when you're writing about a human being, it's uh, it kind of makes the, a lot of the particulars not all that, you know, it can, this stuff plays out in, in a whole slew of fields and just find a field and dive in. And if you're kind of working on that level, then, then uh, what's up in the leaves of the trees isn't isn't all that critical. 
Right. So you never, did you ever really think of yourself um, in the terms of I am a sports writer? Like, would you have ever classified yourself as a quote unquote sports writer? <laughs> Um, you know, I know that's the field I was in and I was writing about people who were in sports. So I had no problem with people calling me that or whatever. That's fine. I would just, but internally it was more like just I'm writing, I'm a writer. You know, that's kind of how I, I sensed it. And, uh, you know, any labels after that, whatever, anybody wanted to put on there, that's all, that's all fine. Right. So I really like to dig into writing on this one. And, um, I'm going to have to take you back in time a little bit, which is funny because um, every now and then, like I wrote a book on the 86 Mets and it came out, I think in 2003. And actually literally the other day I was doing a little, uh, a podcast and someone asked me about some passage from that book and I had no memory of it whatsoever. No clue. No, no clue. clue. No uh, that clue. happens to me all the time. People quote something like, wow, that's like, it's another life. Right. Another, uh, Whatever. Right. I know. It feels like if you want to, if you ask me to tell you the details of when my kid was born, I couldn't do it that well. And, and it's interesting because we do ask people for their memories from long ago. That's right. Exactly. I, that occurs to me all the time. Like I'm asking this guy to download the moment by moment to something 30 <laughs> years ago. And if you asked me a question that went in that direction. I'd be, whoa, you crazy. You nuts. It is. It's very funny. Right. Well, let me ask you about that then. Do you trust memories when you were interviewing people? Let's say you're doing the uh, Richie Parker story, the Emil Griffith story, whatever it is, and they're telling you about a time 20 years earlier. Is there... Well, what I, what I know is that, you know, I, know I, I, I think, you know, you should realize that every detail might not be dead on, but the sense that it's taken for the person, the felt sense of it, it is... Probably, you know, there's some truth there. Now, I know people can also, for their own egoic reasons or whatever, um, expand things, inflate them. Um, but even that can be revealing. And hopefully a piece where somebody was doing that, you would get a sense of that in the piece somewhere. And you'd hope you see this where you got to trust your writer's instinct to be conveying signals or clues that you'd hope that the writer would pick up in the course of hours upon hours of interviewing that you or I did for a magazine piece that we would pick up that kind of embellishment or inflation if that's at play and would give the reader a signal of that somewhere. So it's like, you know, this is, again, it's like you're trusting a lot of the, of instincts and, life experiences and understanding of the world that a, that a writer cultivates either consciously or unconsciously. And, and, you know, that's all you hope is in play in the story somewhere. But it, so you're right. A writer is in a position where he's, he's tapping those memories and yet you hope a little part of him is saying, you know, this could be, this is all human beings constrain things through their own needs and, and if you pick up enough of those needs and where they sometimes get extreme or to the needy side where someone is, is, is doing that kind of stuff, then you'd hope the writer is really giving the reader that signal. So then the reader is now reading the stuff with a little bit of a, a cock of an eyebrow saying, ha, ah, this is really fascinating that this, this, this material, but yet I can almost sense that it's, it's, 
has to do with a lot of it or some piece of it with this person's need to either grab the world by the lapels and scream, look at me, look at me, or, or whatever it might be. Right. Well, is it okay? Is it okay to trust whoever, you know, you're doing a Ken Griffey Jr. profile and he tells you he grew up in a house that smelled, it always struck him as smelling like sweet potatoes. Is it okay to take him at his word that it smelled like sweet potatoes? Do you know what I mean? Like little memories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, just as the writer is out there with the, with the subject and um, using his own filtration system and, uh, you know, sense uh, alarm systems going off here or there, what to trust, what not to trust. The reader has got to be doing that same thing as he's reading the writer and um, sensing whether how much this person's instincts uh, can I can I trust here? And because they, 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 all of us human beings, as we can see in our political climate, have to have those that those operating, and we're going to be played. Uh, and so you know, if you pick up enough of a vibe in a writer that, you know, their own need to strut is at play, then you maybe pull back some of your investment in, in credibility in every sentence that's in there. Right. Just as the writer is doing in a way with the, with the subject. So it's, it's very interesting and there's no clean answer I can give you to that, but we all got to bring all our wits to the table in these moments, these encounters. Right. I um I always thought one of your a skill that you had that I I still envy and admire is that you were able to get people to open up to you of different stripes, different backgrounds, different ethnicity. And I remember I remember being young at SI and you wrote a story really about the relationship between Larry Brown and Allen Iverson. And I don't have it in front of me. I don't but I I remember this story because Iverson was very honest and Larry Brown was very honest and Iverson's mom was very honest and there were these three people from different backgrounds, different generations, and they all opened up to you about their feelings in ways that seemed uncommon. How are you able to get people to trust you and to believe that you are not going to, you know, you're not quote unquote going to screw them over or whatever they're afraid of? Um, that's, uh, I guess, a big question. Um, and I don't have all the answers to that. I don't even know. I can't, you know, see all the whole dynamic from outside and see what's at work and how it's all operating. Um, little, the piece of it that I maybe can guess at is it, um, is a, that I'm a sense that I'm there more to understand than to judge way more, hopefully to understand than to judge and sensing an earnestness and sincerity about understanding that comes across in a million things are happening in that uh, encounter, you know, not just the questions themselves, the words chosen in the question, but body language, all kinds of, you know, so much that's happening that the brain is receiving and, and factoring into any moment to moment decision that are going on there. And so I, I, hopefully somehow enough of that was going on that uh, would make the person trust that, uh, that that was what the, the underlying drive underneath this whole thing was that it wasn't to, to judge or to just write a fancy story that wow people it was and just the care that would go into like questioning and re-questioning and following up and double checking that this is what you were thinking or feeling and this is what you know or, 
why you did this, um, that out of that it would accumulate a sense for the person that this person really is trying to figure this out. And if the more, and at a certain point, the more you could give as the story subject, the more the writer could plant this in a soil that human beings would understand why some strange piece at the end of it, you know, some some attribute of the person or whatever it is, rather than being hung out to dry, it would now be seen coming from a soil that people could understand it and, and say, ah, okay, now that makes sense why the person does that. It's the world finds so strange or weird or whatever it is. So if the person could sense that, that's, you know, that's where that trust, I think, would come from. And I don't know if I've answered your question, but uh, that was a stab at it. Do you always, do you... Is it important that they knew who you were? And I'm not saying like, oh, I'm Gary Smith. I mean, he's this guy. He's written these stories. Um, he has this approach. Does that does that matter before you you try to sit down with someone? It wouldn't matter to me. Uh, if, it, if it could matter to them, then I would, you know, if they asked for, if it was somebody, you know, that had never read anything I wrote, which happened a lot of times, um, and they had some reticence about jumping into this kind of a, an agreement in a way between two people or like a little quest you're both going on to get to the underneath of things. Um, then I would, you know, say, hey, if you, if you want to read some pieces, it'll give you a sense of the depth that it's going to require the time and just how I kind of approach things. So I was glad if there was any reticence to offer that, if they need it, would that find that helpful? But I never, threw that out there at the beginning. I just, I would just say, you, you, you want to try to get a story set up. And if they were agreeable, I, we just plunge in and, and more times than not, they were agreeable and, and never even had a clue really who I was. I think, I'm sure. So it, it's funny how that all works out. But And if they weren't agreeable, would you just move on to the next subject or would you try to get them to do it? Um, you know, if I, I thought it was really a great story and, you know, might, just say, is there anything that would clarify or or resolve any questions or concerns you'd have about this that, you know, maybe it would be, you would, I'd be happy to, is there anything to explore here that would make this work? You know, if there was a story you really wanted to do, uh, that that would be worth, you know, taking it that one extra level. Right. Um, all right, so I have two stories of yours in front of me. So I'm going to do exactly what I told you at the beginning I hate when people do, which is, go back in time and ask you about a story from long ago and you can, uh, you can hate me for doing sure. it. But, um, I just read no last worries. night, last night, 1230, I was on the elliptical machine at the local 24 hour fitness reading. Um, that's worrisome, Jeff. Yeah, I know. I have no life reading, uh, <laughs> right. 20, I'm, it's, <laughs> it's 1230 in the morning. And what am I doing with my time? I'm reading a story from 1997 crime and punishment, the saga of Richie Parker, which, um, Oh boy. I really consider one of the, the finest pieces to ever appear in SI. And, and um, for people who may not remember or don't know, Richie Parker was a basketball player in New York City. He was convicted of sexual assault. He was one of the highest uh, recruited players in the country. And then everyone vanished. And um, your lead, real quick, you, you basically broke it down into parts. But your, your lead was, here's a man, barely a man. He just ran out of adolescence. He stands alone 2,000 miles from home beside a swimming pool in a stucco walled apartment complex in a city built in an American desert. It is too hot to run, but he must run. He strips through his trunks. He steps into the pool. His body leans forward. His hands ball up. His left elbow draws back, pushing against the water. 
Slowly his foot begins to rise from the floor of the pool. His foot gradually descends to the bottom of the pool. His other foot begins to push off. His shoulders tighten. The water push backs. His knee slowly lifts again. His arms silently pump. He climbs out finally and pants for air in the desert that once was the bottom of an ocean. And it's a, it's a ridiculously good story. Um, and what I was struck... I have to rest, rest of it's better than the part you read. <laughs> oh, and I, well, I was going to... Actually, I was going to ask you that later. Do you... Do you, this is all from Richie Parker. Actually. Do you read stuff you wrote and think that sucked? Like, do you ever have? Not, I was not saying that about this, but do you actually have moments, or did you have moments when you're SI? You'd write a story, oh, yeah. it'd be in the magazine, sure. you'd be like, "What was I thinking?" Yeah, for, for, absolutely. And uh, I've all that that opening to that story. I've always, you know, I was trying to set a set a tone for the rest of the piece, and the rest of the piece isn't written quite in the tone of that one. That that. That's, that was actually a little bit, that was a rather rare, um, you know, I, I don't know. I always felt like I always quite later years, I questioned that, that, that approach. And if there was a way to just bring it back some a little bit back anyway, that's, that's interesting. Funny. You read, read that one. Yeah. I was actually going to say, it's the worst story I've ever read. And it's a piece of, it's a piece of trash. And I, you should be embarrassed by the whole story. That was what I was going to say. <laughs> no, no, actually the rest of that story, I, 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 I thought worked pretty well, but I, that was a little twinges over the beginning, but anyway. Well, how did you, um, number one, how did you even, like, how did you come to the story? And I guess the two, you know, the two things were on my mind. Number one, how did you come to the story? And number two, how do you take a kid who, he's not just accused of sexual assault, he was like, convicted of sexual assault, and find empathy slash sympathy for him without coming off a certain way? Uh, yes, okay, how I found it was a very good friend named Cal Fussman who wrote for uh, Esquire and also ESPN, the magazine, um, was in New York at the time. That story was starting to develop and it was just became a tabloid headline after headline, you know, every couple of days following the trail of Richie Parker and all these things that were occurring. Every college tried to recruit him, what, what would start happening. And, and so he just started sticking back page headlines in an envelope and sending to me. So after I got about the third one of these in an envelope, I said, you know, this is actually pretty fascinating um, and probably could say a heck of a lot about America and sports and our, how we get beholden to them. And in this, so it was just, it just, you know, the idea, you know, really formally that this stands for a lot to like, we, we, we attach so much to athletes and to teams and then we're attached to something that's very gluey and it can be really troublesome. And it's, now as a fan, what are we going to do? Are we going to shut that part of ourselves off and are just going to be, you know, I'm going to live in these two hours while I'm watching this person perform and I'm and all the stuff that's really troubling about the sport itself or the person. Am I going to divorce myself from that and kind of live in denial of that? Um, and then also the question of second chances, which America prides itself and loves the idea of the second chance. And this guy, so there's, there's a lot of a, very American issues that, they, are, you know, that this kid's situation brought screaming to life. And so, you know, realizing that, I dove in. And so, um, and as far as the second part of your question, um, it, you know, from all I gathered, this kid was, it wasn't your typical, you know, if there's a, there is no typical. So I retract what I just stated already, but, um, the, 
you know, this kid, yes, had done something heinous, um, but there was just a lot more to it. I mean, if you sat with me for an hour and a half in the principal's office or a couple hours probably, and heard her just so fervently describing this kid and 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 how this was not all this kid. And it was just... The kid had no track record of this kind of stuff. He had, people really described him as just a quiet kid who was well-meaning in so many ways. So I said, okay, you, now can you, you know, juggle this? There's Human beings are contradictions. Can you live with the contradiction and allow that there could be several things going on at once in a person? And, and, then, and then, but the story keeps moving back to the society and how it's going to deal with that complexity um, and not just, you know, I've decided very early on in that story trajectory that the story was more about the country's relationship with this mm-hmm. um, and what it said about our, our country, our culture, than it was about the kids' individual story. You needed enough of the kids' individual story to come to life for all that to come into play, but that, that, that the real light was going to be on the much bigger picture and that's why that first opening you read kind of started laying the groundwork for looking at this from a long long lens uh, close up in a way of a kid yes it's about an individual but keep moving your your scope you know back and see you know almost yeah that the sentences that had to do with you know in a city that was underground under an ocean that's the long timeline and looking at the big picture. So that, that's just a, a little sense of what was going on there. Now, did you, um, did you get a decent amount of time with him, with Richie Parker himself? And did you, did that matter? Um, I got enough time to talk to him. Yeah. I mean, but I always knew by that, that, you know, that that part of the story, I needed again enough, but that that wasn't where the heart of this story was for me at least. And I know, you know, different writers could find their the heart of a story in different places. About what I've always, you know, advised young writers was find where this thing beat, where its heartbeat is for you, and follow that. And because people that you know, if you if you're writing trying to satisfy what an editor you think an editor wants, or some abstract reader or readers in your head you think they want about a situation, that's the story is never very unlikely to come alive. So it's got to, it's got to fascinate you and really beat in your heart in a way for you to create that dynamic for a reader. And so you might be handing an editor a story that they didn't even know they wanted when they assigned it. And, you know, just, you got to follow that if, if this thing's going to come alive. Wait, Gary, I just want to say, I think that's the best advice I, I say that all – I actually think it's funny. When you hand in a, uh, a book proposal, for example, it's the biggest bullshit of all time. Because if you're really reporting, you have no idea where this book is going. And you have no idea where – you had no idea where this story was going to take you. You kind of – you might have had a loose concept. But if you're really reporting right. something, isn't that – that's sort of the beauty of it all. You don't know where it's going to take you. That's right. I mean, each one of these things, for it to really, to me, to work at its higher levels is – you're going off on an exploration. You're going off on an expedition. And you're kind of like stepping into a short story yourself. And you're going to follow this thread and see where it takes you. 
and what it resonates inside of you, your life experiences, the things you've, you know, spinning around in your mind. And if if it doesn't light up those light bulbs, activate those regions of your brain, you're you're probably not going to be able to light them up in a reader's brain. So just trust and follow that, your fascination. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, It's really interesting. The story basically breaks down piece by piece the different people impacted by Richie Parker's plight. And you have a part. So I printed this out. My wife always hates when I print out long articles. And this thing, because it, you know, it's 40 bucks a cartridge at the local Staples. I get it. Yeah. And this thing was 21 pages. And she's like, the printer's going, but um, but um. What a waste of ink. Yeah. She's like, ah. And uh, chapter 11. So pages 18 through whatever, 21. It, you devote to Barry Baum, Baum, the writer for the New York Post. And he's the one, every time Richie Parker visits a school or a school sort of decides to commit to Richie Parker, this writer from the New York Post calls him up and says, do you know this guy is you know, convicted, blah, blah, blah. And he comes off the whole story. I'm thinking, God, what, a, what an asshole and what a dirty job for this guy to do. And then you find him and you talk to him and I kind of got the feeling, and I may be totally wrong, that you fa- kind of found his task um, undigestible. Like you were not a fan of what he was doing, uh, per se. Am I, am I wrong on that? Um, mixed. I mean, I, I, I saw the dynamic of a, a young reporter, you know, diligently doing, going about his work and, you know, and, and, and having a, a moral outrage that, you know, all of us can have to our dying days, but a lot of us might be likely to have in our 20s. And so I found him very, you know, there was an innocence about him um, as well. And so I was in, it was a very mixed bag of what was happening with him that would get him to pursue. I mean, you have a newspaper and an editor who's like, what's the next thing on the Richie Parker story, you know? And, and so he's feeling that and he's trying to prove himself. And I think we all get, been in moments of that scenario like that. So, you know, with a sense of like, <clears throat> is this the wisest, you know, course he's taking, but yet the world, a lot of things where I think a lot of us could see ourselves getting into that position. And, um, <laughs> it's just, you know, I just found it, in, it was fascinating. The whole story was rife with situations like that moral quicksand and how much, we're in and we, some of us are aware enough of the, the quicksand as it's glopping us down, sucking us down. And some of us aren't, but, um, but that all around this, this is, this stuff was, is happening on with so many different levels from university presidents to athletic directors, to coaches, to the reporter covering the story, to the player himself, to the mom, you know, the principal of the school and it's just like a, it was you know the story for some way, way weird way probably more than any other story I ever wrote created for the readers you could almost picture them in a round table I mean after I wrote that story I'd bump into a number of people who almost would report having like these like story debates about the story and coming at it from so many different angles you could, it was almost like a literal round table arguing the different sides of whether the person did the right thing and, and just how these things all spiral together. Um, 
And it's just fascinating to think about how much that's happening all the time around this. And even now, things we're watching unfold in front of the national, on the national stage, that that kind of, dyna- those dynamics are occurring all the time. And there's people just, you know, thinking they're doing the right thing, but feeling the pressures of, you know, of the age they're at or whatever it is, of like trying to be the good boy, the good girl, and how much that can just draw you into really deep waters and the more you're all you can have is develop your sense your awareness to have a a prayer of keeping your eyes above the water to realize the bigger picture of what you're you might be involved in and it's just to me that's always just really rich 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 human material that all of us in some way or other are, are part of in each day right do you um do you when you write about someone like a richie parker do you then feel somewhat attached to him? Like, were you every now and then when he's at LIU playing basketball, will you follow his career? Would you, do you do an occasional Google search for Richie Parker or do they come and then do they just kind of go from your life? Um, every now and then it would like something might bring something up about Richie. Like, gosh, I wonder what happened. You know, I, I probably with him, I did probably a Google search maybe, maybe twice, you know, in the years since, um, or somebody would say, I saw him on something or whatever. So yeah, there's a little interest, you know, there's interest, um, you know, but not, I would say attachment, uh, but, you know, and it's just a curiosity that, uh, and, you know, some you get even closer to than, than, like I said about the Richester, I didn't need to spend as much time as I, with him as I normally do about the character I'm writing about. So there are others where it went beyond um, a mere, uh, you know, kind of semi-idle curiosity to a really more active interest because you've spent so much time with a person and there's something very winning about them that, you know, made you care more. Right. Before we continue with Two Writers Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my son and Emmett's just back from two weeks at sleepaway camp and he returned with sap stuck to his face, sticks in his hair, covered in dirt. He's a bit feral. So let's give this a try. Emmett? Want to talk about the USFL? 503 Sports? Yeah. Hmm. I'll just handle this one myself. Two Riders Slinging Yang is sponsored by 503 Sports, which sells the most amazing throwback sports gear. USFL, XFL, World Football League, Minor League Baseball and Hockey, all handcrafted and at amazing prices. So be like Wild Emmett Perlman, Woods Boy, and visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to save 10% off your first purchase. In 1996, you wrote a story about radio. And before I ask you about that story, I'm actually, I've wondered about this for years. This, you know, piece you wrote on radio, uh, you know, 18-year-old kid in Anderson, South Carolina, football, blah. It ends up becoming a movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Ed Harris. And I wonder what it is like to see um, something you sort of immerse yourself in become a movie. Like, are you watching radio thinking, this is terrible. Are you watching radio thinking they nailed it? Like, what is it like? Is there a surreal element to seeing a story you wrote become a film? There is a surreal element to it. And it's, you know, even earlier than seeing it on the screen is like, you know, being invited by the producer director to come to the town that they've overtaken and turned into a 1960s <laughs> town with vehicles in every parking spot on the main street of that little town you know, 1960s vehicles and the store windows have been changed and 
to make reflect a, a little town in the '60s, and that's surreal. And uh, just to see a whole army of people and props materialize seemingly out of thin air um, is really strange feeling. And uh, it's cool too, interesting. And then, um, and then as far as the movie itself, um, you know, I got a pretty good understanding pretty quickly that. The, once the creature leaves, you know, once you've created the creature and put it out in the world, it, it, especially it's when it's going to a movie, it, yeah, it, it's going to be its own. It, for it to work, you know, in that in that field, it, it has to, you know, check certain boxes. So I, I got that and, um, you know, thought that, if, you know, for a mainstream movie, I thought they really, you know, it, 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 it did, did well. And I... I I, I saw it right when it came out, and then about they had a ten-year anniversary of it with the people who were involved in it at the theater, and I hadn't seen it in ten years. And this was I don't know now about eight or nine years ago, and uh, and uh, you know I was tearing up watching it. So I yeah, either it worked enough, or I'm a, I'm you know just a pushover. Uh, I don't know which, but I, I think it was probably some of both, maybe. But I, anyway. Uh, I thought that uh, Mike Tolan, the producer director, did a did a really good job with it. And uh, of course, they have to kind of rev certain parts up, and you know, move some parts that might you know have more you know to the side, just because they that that won't work as well for them. So I, I get all this that stuff that's a play. Yeah, um, is it true you get one point seven cents every time someone watches the movie the movie radio? <laughs> if they do, I, it somehow it's found its way here. <laughs> Where did you come up with that figure? <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> so um, the story is great. It's almost like it's almost like the story is forgotten a little bit because there was a movie. And the story, I I don't know what I, who, my my opinion's worth. You know, the one point seven cents. I think I just think it's a brilliant piece. And uh, your lead here, I like to read leads here. Is uh, we begin way over there, out on the margin. We begin with a dirty, disheveled 18-year-old boy roaring down a hill in a grocery cart, screaming like a banshee, holding a transistor radio to his ear. No one ever plays with him, for he can barely speak and never understands the rules. He can't read or write a word. He needs to be put away in some kind of institution, people keep telling his mother, because anything, anything at all can happen out there on the margin. How did you find out about this story, and why did you decide? I mean, it's a really, really obscure thing to write about in a magazine like SI, especially how did you, how did you find out about it? And how did you sort of decide to do it? Um, a, a local newspaper writer in Anderson sent me, you know, wrote a story, you know, a newspaper version length story uh, about radio and sent it to me and just asked me to kind of critique it, you know, just to, I guess he'd read some pieces I'd written and just was looking for some input on his writing. So I wrote him a letter and, you know, gave him some feedback on it. And the piece he'd sent me just was on my my writing desk, which is really it's like a it's a door that was sitting on top of a couple uh, um, uh, filing cabinets on either end. And uh, so it was a pretty long desk, uh, fiction door length desk. And so there was just sides of it where things would stack up, as I'm sure you maybe have similar in your uh, writing area. I'm literally staring at and, that scene right now. Okay, <laughs> just flinching as you stare, yeah. probably. But if it, um, anyway, so it was one of those like once every five or ten years. Like I need to like get some papers off of this desk and clean, organize this a little bit. And I was doing that, you know, several years after, at least maybe a year and a half after, at least I can't even remember. But um, 
and came upon that old newspaper article and just, it just, you know, for some reason it clicked then. It should have probably clicked before. And that would be an interesting, you know, magazine story to just, you know, this guy who's, you know, become this mascot for this school and is, you know, on its part of its football team every year and is still going to school years after year after year every day like a student. Like, that's, this is really pretty unusual dynamic here. Let's, let's go f- check it out and find out. So went to the school and just started following uh, radio around, which was a breath of fresh air after I'm sure you've had it many times having to go through agents and worry about, you know, image of someone and their guardedness over everything they say, just have someone who is just wide open and all you got to do is follow them and watch the encounters and interactions and keep the, your ballpoint pen moving across the page, you know, scribbling notes. Is that what you're doing? Are you literally sort of hanging out and following him and with a notepad in your hand? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely doing that a lot. And then obviously peeling off the, given moments to talk to people that he's having these ricochets with and downloading from them their side of it and their backstory that leads, you know, into those moments. And uh, so it's just, yeah, back and forth between watching him, watching this <coughs> pinball at, at loose, you know, let, let loose um, and all the pings and bongs and <laughs> crazy sounds that are uh, coming uh, from that. And then, talking to everyone and getting there what's what's happening to them internally in their encounters with this person and what why is it resonating for them why does it mean so much why is it pulling these very you know in some ways unusual responses from people what's he touching here that doesn't normally get touched that feels so alive because it's not typically touched for these people do you love that story or do you look back and think oh, I should have done that better uh, no I think you know I, I, I appreciate the story. I thought it did well. It did. It was good. It served. It. It. Yeah, I, I, I felt pretty good about that story. Right. When you when you write a story, like, do you um, are you a guy? You gather all your information, so you have whatever three months to write a story. Are you using two and a half months to gather, 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 and then do you just hunker down and write? Um. Well, okay. Just to cover that timeline a little bit, very briefly, it would probably be the. You know, when this wouldn't have been a story where I could do a week's worth of reading, but in a lot of the stories it would be where you just spend the first week of reading, learning everything you can about either the person or, in some cases, about the person's world. If you're going to, if the person's in a world you don't really know, then you really need to absorb that world. Um, so that's where that, you know. And then as I'm, you're doing that reading, I'm starting to jot down questions, but again, being wide open to wherever this thing might go, not, you know, getting so narrowed into any predisposed ideas about whether where the, where this thing's going and and then and then it's, yeah go spend a week and a half just hanging as much as you can with that person um, talking to everyone around them you know as, as much as you possibly can kind of going wall to wall and then going home and uh, once I started going through all those notepads that I've brought back, um, and I would, you know, be typing them into my laptop and putting them into categories or whatever, theme, different parts of the story. And then a million questions would start coming up of things like, ah, I need to ask more about this, or this could be a pivotal scene. So then it'd be, as I'm doing all this typing, which is taking forever to type all this stuff in, I'm 
now getting a whole list of new questions and going back to people that I spoke to. So just to kind of now squeeze a long answer into a shorter one, um, it could easily be, depending on the story, you know, close to two months. Sometimes it was, you know, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, until you're ready to write. And then the writing process for me, you know, it's average might be two and a half weeks to three. Um, but there was probably a quarter of the stories I wrote today. I got to the end of them and said, this isn't quite working the way I, it doesn't quite feel alive in some way. And so there, was there a different approach that would have made this work better? And sometimes that meant more phone calls and getting just, you sensing the story from a different direction. And if you have to strain it through a new direction in a way, that's going to take some more, you know, legwork, reporting work, and then just rewriting the whole thing, you know, which that's a painful moment when you realize that that's what this uh, thing requires. But I'm um, sure we've all been there. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's kind of how that would go. Uh, I remember having these moments when I was at SI and I was covering baseball and I'd be in my hotel room and it would be three in the morning and my story was due, whatever, in four hours. And I'd been up for six hours writing it. And I finished it. And I knew the thing was terrible. Or I knew it wasn't quite right. And I, I just remember feeling like crying and walking up and down the hallway, screaming in the stairwell. You know, like throwing punches. And do you not, were you, were you given the liberty at least of, you know, the, the time to write these stories where you did not have that level of, self-loathing and anxiety? <laughs> um, you know, um, I'm fortunate that I would, I, I, I wouldn't go into the self-loathing piece of it. I, <laughs> I kind of knew that I was on a time. Hey, I didn't have, because I had usually the freedom to go do it right now, even though it was like a big, deep breath, like, oh crap, I've got to go spend another month with this thing that I've just been living with for two months or whatever. Um, but, um, uh, you know, uh, but I, there was also a sense of, I'm just trying to make this thing the best I can. I'm doing my best and, um, and I'm up a little bit on a tightrope, you know, here. So it's very easy to follow, the, you know, and so if I teetered off in here and this didn't, didn't pull off exactly this piece of acrobatics that I might've had as a vision for it, um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, the price of doing business here, you know, you're not going to. Uh, nail all these things. And the only way to find out was to see it through to the end and write it this way to learn. I, there's no way I could have known <laughs> in the middle of this, that this wasn't the exact ideal choice right. of a narrative voice or whatever it is. And the only way to, to found that out was to take it to its bitter end and then have it sink in. So um, anyway, some of that has to do with the luxury of time and just, you know, all right, I can, it's on me, you know, I, I can just now go spend another three weeks or a month or whatever getting this right or, and knowing that I would much more live with myself afterwards if I did that than turned in something that was 75% good, but not all the, you know, what it could have been. Right. I was reading an interview you did a bunch of years ago and you, Mike Bevins, you mentioned, edited some of your stuff and, and Mike was my editor at Sports Illustrated for baseball. And I remember... I did, I did do a story about Barry Bonds and I was, I got Barry Bonds to talk to the magazine. Um, Richard Hoffer did a, done a story on him like seven years earlier 
And he, after that, he refused to ever speak to SI again. And I got Barry Bonds to speak. It was my big victory as a young writer at SI. And I spent all night writing the story, slaving over the story, walking the stairwells, hating myself, turning it in. <laughs> and I feel great. And I'm in the taxi going to the airport and my phone rings and it's Mike Bevins. And he says, Perlman, if we wanted to give Bonds a blowjob, we could have brought him to the streets of New York. Oh, God, was, <laughs> that's a gut punch. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, oh, God. Oh, God. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's no recovering from that one. Yeah, I don't even know what the next question is after that. Or whether, <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised we're sitting here talking on the phone right now. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, well, I do want to ask you one more thing. I um, I was reading a story you did about Emil Griffith, the boxer, and it uh, it appeared in 2006. Uh, it was really good. And I want to ask you something specific, and it kind of relates to a lot of your stories, which is you had a point here where you wrote, get used to the smoke. Let it fill your lungs and sting your eyes. There's no getting rid of it. Not in a story about Emil Griffith. Not in the one American arena where the smoke just doesn't seem to dissipate. A policeman or a judge or a lawyer can openly be something other than a homosexual. A doctor, a teacher, a carpenter can be, along with, of course, an actor or a musician or a writer. Even executives on Wall Street now can. But a male athlete in a major sport... No. And you have this kind of theme in the story of smoke and the, and the smoke. And, and you had in the Richie Parker, you kind of had this, you know, the theme with the periodic table. Where does this stuff come from? Like, will you just literally be taking a walk or taking a jog or watching TV or whatever? And a theme will enter your mind. Do these things come to you at some point? Like, how do you mentally develop a theme for a story? Well, I think, you know, in retrospect, not knowing at the time, but what I you know, learned a little more about the brain subsequently is that, um, that you know, that everything that's going on in the brain, there's interconnectivity between the left and the right side, but the right side is the part that more likely to slowly work something in, and a connection can occur to something and suddenly it just comes to life. And I, there's no explaining this. And it has to be, you know, it's so individual with your particular, one, a person's particular life experience, the things they're reading, thinking, talking about. And just, you know, some little aspect, of some of the piece of the story, as you're, as you're thinking about it, or even it sometimes occurs as you're writing it, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's, it stands for something. A connection occurs and you realize it's interconnection with some other really important part of this human being, very central to, you know, major undercurrent in their life. And it just, you know, how that, you know, that connection, that neural connection occurs is, you know, possible for me to explain. And even a neuroscientist would probably struggle to some degree, but, um, God, when you get it, you know, as a writer, as you know, it's a very good feeling to be like, wow, that pulls this together. That makes sense of something that's very complex. Um, you know, in the case of the Richard Parker, there was a periodic table learning, you know, you know, once I had a sense of that, that that extra electron on the outer shell, that it creates one explosion, can, can create one explosion after another, if it's, you know, how volatile that creates, the volatility it creates chemically speaking, um, you know, the how, what, how that stood for what, what's happening with Richie Parker, it just made so much sense. But I, you know, again, I had a, a glimmer about that, but I didn't know enough about it. And I had to call a professor at a college and just, you know, bombard him with questions for 45 minutes to get it all understood. 
but it was just a sense of that just from something floating in my life experience or whatever. Um, and, and then again with this one, the smoke thing, you know, just remembering a moment sitting in, in with the vehicle and this, you know, this, there's an advertisement about himself on the side of the bus and then his big plume of smoke goes up and, and the bus pulls away and he's staring at it, trying to make sense of what just happened and just how much that fit his life, the smoke that he had to create and how he lived in that smoke because if people ever saw him for what he was, um, his, his whole li- livelihood and career and sense of self would go up in smoke. Um, but just so how he kind of had to live in that smoky terrain and just then what the cost of a life is living in smoke. Um, I babbled here for about no, five that's minutes, good, but I don't even know if I've answered the question. I think you did. But, uh, I actually, you know, it's funny. I always, um, I used to say, so when I would watch, when I would, uh, when I was covering baseball back to SI, I would watch Tom Verducci a lot. Uh, he would be, he was like the, you know, the king of baseball writing and I was a scrub and I would watch him work a clubhouse just as an example. And he was always paying attention to the minutia, you know, where the other 15 writers are talking or are talking to Derek Jeter about his batting average. Verducci would wait for them all to go away and ask about a picture tucked in the back of his locker or a cut on his ankle. You know what I mean? Like little, and it seems like you were really, you were the same way, like looking for, looking for the small and finding something big in it. Is that, is that overly, am I oversimplifying that? No, no, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think, yeah, I think there's little things like that for all of us. If we were to look, you know, with those kind of eyes at our own wife or whatever, we, there's a, you know, there's little small things that we know stand for so much more. There's a whole world almost in that little small detail. And so once you have that sense of it, your eyes just start being attuned to the detail. Cause I think all of us know when we've read a great writer, you know, a great piece of fiction or whatever it is, we'll, we'll see that sentence. It's like, so it can be so simple and has a detail that's seemingly so simple, but placed in the context of the words right around it just pops and it just blows up in a whole world of understanding. And so that's, that's what great writing is, is about in so many ways. Right. I want to ask you one last question. You, um, you did an interview 10 years ago for media bistro. And the question was, um, this is literally what the guy wrote. He said, or said in the acknowledgments of the book of you had a, a anthology come out at the time you wrote in an industry in which the long narrative is gasping. And then he said, in 10 years, do you think there will still be a place for the type of contract that you have uh, and the type of writing you do? And that was literally 10 years ago. And you said, I hope so. But God, the way the industry is changing, I couldn't tell you with total confidence. Um, here we are, 10 years, 10 years. You can actually answer this yourself because you're in it now. Um, is there a job in 2018 for a guy who wants to write 6,000, 8,000 word long form, take a bunch of months to do it? Or do you feel like what you were allowed to do at SI at that time is, is pretty much more take? Um, I have to believe it's way harder to do now than it was then. And, but at the same time, I would urge anyone that had the slightest wisp of a desire to do it, to go find a way to make it so good that somebody has to, to, find a, a place to publish it, whether it's internet or whatever the platform, just, you know, go for it. And, and I, you know, I know there, there could be all kind of heartbreak that's involved in that trail and, 
and walls you will ram into a thousand times. But if that's what's in your heart, go do it and make it so good that you just execute it so well that that somebody you make somebody want something they didn't even know they wanted. So, uh, but I'm saying that with full understanding that uh, that uh, there's a lot more walls and barriers, and it's a lot more challenging to to get that kind of a seven eight thousand word piece published somewhere. So you may have to self-publish it or you may have to, you know, find some other way to, to, to do it. But uh, if you're following your heart, there's way better chance you're going to live a healthier life and a more fun, lively life than uh, if you're trying to just satisfy what you think someone else wants you to do. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, let me ask you a final, final question. You are a, you are a devotee to the flip phone. You're not on Twitter. I'm guessing you're not on Facebook. Maybe you are. Are you just not a? Uh, are you not a general fan of modern technology? Are you? Are is it? Is it something you've sort of just um, backed away? Yeah, from? I'm not really. Devo- I'm not really a devotee of the flip phone either. It just it seems to be the barest the minimum to uh, to get away with. Uh, let's see. Um, and, and no, I'm not on Facebook or any social media. Um, I just you know, and this is different for everybody. I know a different job you might be in where it might be critical or really important or for certain people, there's a connectivity to it that just, you know, lights up their brain. So this is strictly for me. It's not like a prescription for anybody else. But for me, it would just be a, a use of time that wouldn't be worthwhile enough and that I'm already learning to doubt my own thoughts, let alone buy into someone else's thoughts that heavily. So uh, it would kind of take me away from what my my personal best interests are and for my healthy brains to, to be healthy, uh, that so it's a, a personal choice in that regard. You you know you're missing out that um, one of the Kardashians had her lip implants removed the other day. <laughs> Damn! Well, thanks for uh, yeah. Usually somebody will bring forward these things, and I and it's all I won't miss them completely. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, no charge. No charge for that one. That's a freebie, right? <laughs> oh sweet. Uh, um, listen, Gary. Seriously, I appreciate you doing this so much. I'm really. Uh, like a long time admirer, obviously, of your work. And I, uh, I really just, I appreciate it greatly. Very kind of you. And I equally of your writing and I uh, really appreciate uh, your, the, the questions you had were really uh, were wonderful. So thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Gary Smith, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Gary, well, nowhere, literally nowhere, which is awesome. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. Also, a reminder, my book about the USFL, Football for a Buck, is available for pre-sale now and out officially in September. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.